The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Ruth 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I will come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malin. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be with you uh, this evening. Good to see uh, some new faces as well. It's an exciting day in the life of our church. We get to celebrate a baptism of, of one of our church family members, and so excited about that uh, in just a little bit. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of serving as pastor here uh, at Citizens. Real quick, before we dive into God's Word, uh, hopefully you got one of these coming in, but these are our 2021 Advent devotional guides. So this is going to uh, walk us through the season that starts next Sunday. So if you're not familiar, Advent is a season uh, practiced for about 17 
1,500 years all across the global church. And Advent is simply the Latin word for coming or arrival. And so it's a season that the global church spends looking back and remembering how Jesus came and arrived 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. And we look forward in anticipation to the day where he is going to come again. To, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. And so this is going to walk us through that. There's scripture for each day. Families, there's a family worship guide in there as well to help you have uh, a once a week family devotion centered around uh, the Advent candles. Really excited about this. Be sure to grab one of those uh, on your way out. It's also available online if you want to do that as well. All right, Ruth chapter four, grab a Bible, grab your bulletin. That's where we're going to be hanging out uh, tonight. Ruth chapter four. Let me pray for us. Let's dive into God's word and finish up Ruth together. Lord, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. And thank you for the fact that all we have is you. That we were lost and we were, we were the ones in darkest night. We were the ones that thought we knew what we were doing, thought we knew how to save ourselves, thought we knew how to light the path forward. And yet you and your kindness and mercy and love saw us dead in our sins, stuck in our tracks, and sent your son, Jesus. We're grateful for the good news of the gospel, Lord. God, may we, may we not be ch uh, not changed by your word tonight, Lord. As, as we look at it, as we think about Ruth 4, as we think about Jesus on the cross on our behalf, Lord, would you shape our hearts, change our minds, renew our spirits, whatever it is that we need from you, Lord. We love you. For all things in Christ's name, amen. In 1998, DreamWorks Pictures released their very first animated film called Ants. Now, this is, Ants is not to be confused with A Bug's Life, which also happened to come out in 1998 by Disney and is the superior movie. But DreamWorks in 1998 released a movie called Ants. And I'll spare you all of the details of the plot. Feel free to go watch it. But Ants primarily centers around one worker ant named Z. And the whole movie is around Z kind of figuring out who he is in life. He wants to throw off all the restrictions of his community. He wants to become more than just what he calls this lame worker ant. He wants to make the princess, Princess Bala, fall in love with him. It's really all this, you know, follow your hearts kind of nonsense. But what's fascinating about the movie is the ending. I actually went back and rewatched it this week. What happens is that you spend an hour and a half totally engrossed in one story taking place in one tiny anthill. And you start rooting for Z, kind of. He's kind of annoying. He's like an anti-hero, like we talked about last week. And you're like, will Princess Bala fall in love with him? Will General Mandeville, that's the bad guy, overthrow the queen and take over the colony? What is going to happen? And... As every good animated movie does, spoiler alert, the movie ends with Z figuring out his true identity, leading the charge to take the colony back from General Mandelbill. Princess Bala falls in love with him happily ever after. But the real key of the movie is in the very, very end. So what happens is you're smiling ear to ear, excited about these amateur or animated ants that you didn't know about an hour and a half ago is the camera starts to zoom out. And what you realize is that you were just engrossed, partially, in a film for an hour and a half about a tiny anthill in the middle of Central Park, in the middle of New York City, in the middle of the continental United States. And you realize, as the viewer, that this story about an ant named Z, while important, while meaningful, and while it matters in the grand scheme of things, it's not all that important, and really it finds its bigger beauty in the larger story that's happening. 
in the larger narrative. What we're going to see tonight as we wrap up Ruth is we're going to remember and we're going to see, okay, this is how the story works out for Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, but we're going to see that the bigger beauty lies not in God's faithfulness to them, but in God's faithfulness to us through the story. We're going to zoom out. We're going to take the 30,000 feet approach. We're going to see, okay, this is how God resolves it in their lives, but how much more beautiful is the larger zoom out story that he is writing? All series long over the past month, we've been asking this question as we've worked through the book of Ruth, will we trust God? In week one, we asked the question, will we trust God when we suffer? And two weeks ago, we asked, will we trust God when we prosper? Then last week, we asked, will we trust God in the middle? But tonight, our final question is this, will we trust God to save us? Will we trust God to save us? Ruth chapter 4, let me remind you real quick of what has happened so far. So in Ruth chapter 1, we were introduced to Elimelech and Naomi, and they live in Bethlehem. But a famine comes to Bethlehem, and so they leave town. They go to a foreign nation called Moab, and they actually settle in there for about 10 years. And their two sons, Chalon and Milion, marry two foreign women, Orpah and Ruth. And we see over the course of the 10 years that much suffering comes to Naomi. Her husband and her two sons die. Eventually, she's headed back to Bethlehem because a harvest, wheat, food has returned. She's left with what she calls a nothing of a daughter-in-law named Ruth. And then we get to chapter 2. Ruth heads into the field. She collects wheat, and she's provided for. She meets Boaz. He cares for them, provides for her and Naomi, gives them food to eat for about seven weeks. And Naomi's excited because they're related to Boaz. And Boaz might become a redeemer. He might be more than just a provider or a benefactor. He might step in and marry Ruth and give them a child. But then we know in Ruth chapter 3 that it's going a little slow. So Naomi takes matters into her own hands. She says, Ruth, go in the middle of the night to Boaz. And we're left with kind of this peak of the tension of the story. Will Boaz redeem Ruth? The whole story is leading up to this moment of tension. Will he be Ruth's kinsman redeemer? If you remember from last week, a kinsman redeemer, just as a way of reminder, was a male relative who had the privilege or responsibility to act for a family member who was in trouble, danger, or need. So if someone in your immediate family or extended family fell into a need, God had a system designed where a kinsman, a family member, would step in and care for them, provide for them, redeem them, do whatever is necessary to take care of them, even at great cost to themselves. That's what Boaz wants to be for Ruth. That's what Ruth wants to be for Boaz. But as we found out at the end of chapter 3, there's another man who is more closely related to Ruth and Naomi, and he actually gets first dibs, according to the law of God, to step in and be the kinsman redeemer. And that's where we pick it up in chapter 4. I want to walk through this text together, and then we'll end by doing the, the zoom out 30,000 feet. What is God doing in this whole story type of deal? So Ruth chapter 4, hopefully you have a Bible or the bulletin. You're going to want to follow along. Ruth chapter 4, now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. So this is the very next morning after Ruth goes to him at night. He's like, I'm going to take care of this. He goes to the gate. Now the gate in the ancient Near East is where a lot of business or legal transactions would happen. So it was kind of like a meeting place of business. It was also the place where it was easy to find somebody because there was one way in and one way out of the city. So if you were going to or from the fields, you had to go through the gate. And so Boaz is like, I'm going to go. I'm going to sit down at the gate. When he comes, I'll acknowledge 
acknowledge him. We'll start having to talk about this whole redeemer situation. And it's interesting here, the narrator doesn't name the man. He actually goes kind of out of his way not to name this potential redeemer. In, in the text, you can actually translate it in modern terms as Mr. So-and-so. That's what we're going to call him the rest of the night. Mr. So-and-so, sit on down. We got some things we got to talk about. Verse 2. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. So he gathers 10 kind of government officials, ruling men in that city to preside over what's about to happen. Verse 3. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. All right, here's what's happening here. There is a piece of land probably left over from when Elimelech and Naomi lived in Bethlehem. And Naomi and Ruth have come on hard times. The harvest is about to end. And so Naomi is thinking about selling it. Now, this is a, a kind of more deeply spiritual and emotional act than just how we would think about selling or buying property today. So land in that time had deeply spiritual and economical implications. So what happened is when God led his people out of Egypt and into the promised land of Canaan, he had them divide up the land based on first the tribes, and then the tribes divided it out based on clans, like groups of families. And then the clans divided out land based on families so that all the people in the people of God would have land that their families would be provided for. So it's deeply spiritual. It's connected to the call of God to the promised land. But Naomi's like, I have no choice. I have to sell it. Now, what would happen is one of the roles of a kinsman redeemer, Leviticus 25, 25, if you want to write down that reference for fun, is that they would buy the land that their family member needed to sell. So to kind of put it in modern day terms, if you need, if you need to sell your house, you're like, I got to pay for groceries. I got to pay uh, to take care of my kids. I'm going to sell my house. A kinsman redeemer, a family member would buy the house and hold it for seven years until the next year of Jubilee, where they would give it to you or your next heir in line. It was this whole system of care for God's people, where even if you had to sell your land, you would be provided for and eventually get the land back. And so Boaz is like, hey, Mr. So-and-so, I got a really good deal for you. Naomi's selling land. And you know she has no heirs. She's got no sons. She's got no grandsons. So essentially, here's some really cheap land you can buy, and you never have to give it back to her because she has no one that's going to come and claim it. It's a good business deal. Let's see what the guy says. And he said, I will redeem it. He's smart. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So Boaz has a little bit of a gotcha. He's like, hey, cheap land, no inheritance. They're not going to take it back from you. Do you want it? And the guy's like, yeah, for sure. That sounds awesome. Oh, by the way, there's a part two to you becoming a kinsman redeemer. It also comes with Ruth, the Moabite widow. And another rule of the kinsman redeemer, Numbers 25.5, another random reference if you want it, is to step in and marry the wife of a widow such that you would have children with them and continue on the line of her late husband as a means of providing for the family. This was another way that God provided for his people. So he says, hey, you get the land, but you also have to take Ruth and you have to give her a child so to continue on the line and the family of her dead husband, Malon. Not so sweet of a deal anymore, according to this guy, verse 6. Then the Redeemer, Mr. So-and-so, said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. He's like, I, don't, I can't do this. 
I don't want this. This is not for me. I have my own people I have to take care of, my own heirs to my inheritance. I can't step in. You take it. Verse 7. This was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So in other words, when you signed a contract, you gave them your shoe. It worked for them, I don't understand. Verse 8, there's no theological implications, this is what they did. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day. I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his, in his inheritance, to give him kids to continue his family line, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Day. So he says, you see that I have done what Naomi was praying for in Ruth chapter one. You see that I've stepped in. You see that I'm offering Ruth rest, that I'm going to be the kinsman redeemer. I'm going to take the land, but I'm going to take Ruth. I'm going to give her the child. I'm going to continue on the name of her family. I'm going to step in at great cost to myself and provide for Ruth and for Naomi. Verse 11, then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. So a crowd is gathered and they're like, yep, thumbs up. We see it. He gave you his shoe. Sounds great. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Let's pause there for a second. These verses are incredible. And I don't want you to miss what the crowd and the elders say to Boaz. They pronounce a threefold blessing over Boaz, Ruth, and their family. They lift him up before the Lord. They pray for him. They say, because of your sacrifice, because of your faithfulness, this is what we're asking the Lord to do. And they have profound implications for the zoom out of the story we're going to do in just a second. The first blessing is a blessing on Ruth. And they pray that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah that she would have a prominent place in the story of God's people. So if you're not familiar with the story of the Israelites, Rachel and Leah were the two wives of Jacob, and they were and are considered the matriarchs of Israel. It is through them that 12 sons are born that become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Rachel and Leah hold this incredible place of honor in the story of God's people. And the elders in the crowd at Bethlehem are praying, we want Ruth to have honor, to have a prominent place of, of, of praise in the story of God. Second thing they bless, the second person they bless is Boaz, and they pray that he would be renowned in Bethlehem, that Boaz would become well-known for his kindness and his compassion and his integrity and his faithfulness and his sacrifice, that he would be well-known for generations, that, I don't know, hypothetically, a church in a city and a country that does not yet exist 3,000 years later would be talking about him on a Sunday night at 5 p.m. That's what they pray for Boaz, that he would be renowned in Bethlehem. Number three, for the household their blessing is that the house would be like the house of Perez. Now, there's way more in the story of Perez and Tamar that we'll get into uh, in this week's midweek podcast. But what matters for us here is that Perez has a renowned lineage in Bethlehem. His family line matters greatly to this particular town of Bethlehem. And they're praying that that would be true of Boaz and Ruth's family, that their family line and descendants would impact Bethlehem greatly. That's called foreshadowing. All right, hold on to those thoughts. Verse 13, let's finish out. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore 
a son. This is the, only the second time that the Lord is put as the prominent actor in the book of Ruth. The two great needs in Ruth are food and fertility. Chapter 1, verse 6, God shows up and provides a harvest. Chapter 4, verse 13, he shows up and provides a son. That's what God is doing. Verse 14, and the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. So they're blessing Naomi now. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, notice this in contrast to chapter 1, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, became his caretaker. The redemption doesn't stop with Ruth. I mean, what a fitting and wonderful conclusion to the story. The story begins with Naomi losing everything, and it ends with a promised child in her lap, a hope of redemption. God has not abandoned her. This doesn't negate all of the suffering that she's walked through. It doesn't make it all go away. It doesn't just replace what she's lost, but God has still been gracious to Naomi. She's lost her two sons and her husband, but he's given her Ruth, who the women say is more to her than seven sons, direct contrast to this nothing of a daughter-in-law. Now she considers her more than seven sons. Her arms were empty. No family line, no heirs, no grandchildren, but now in her lap lies a child. A promise of hope, a promise that she will be taken care of in the future. She comes back to Bethlehem with nothing, and now seven weeks plus nine months later, she holds in her arms the promise of redemption. God has been faithful. He has saved and redeemed Naomi. Now pause here for just a moment. I have loved getting to work through the book of Ruth. I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I hope you guys have, have enjoyed standing up for a long time while we read through this passage. I hope you've enjoyed looking at the story of Boaz and, and Ruth and Naomi and God's faithfulness to them. This over and over again, his faithfulness in this story. He brings Ruth and Naomi together. He brings them back to Bethlehem. He brings Ruth to Boaz. He provides them to all the situations to work out. Mr. So-and-so stands aside. He can redeem them. Now he gives them a child. Now this child of promise is laying in the lap of Naomi. All the ways that God was faithful to Ruth and Boaz in Naomi. And we could just stop there and there'd be so much to be encouraged by. There'd be so much to have hope with. Look at how God cares for his people. Look at how he provides for his people, how he's faithful to his people. Done, easy, let's pray, let's get going. But there is a more beautiful story being written at the end. The greater story is in the zoom out. The bigger story is in, in the, the bigger promise, the incredible faithfulness of God is in the larger story he's writing. So let's finish Ruth 4, verses 17 through 22. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, the son has been born to Naomi, they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. What a beautiful ending to Ruth, a genealogy. A list of names. A literary classic. What one scholar said is the greatest work of literature ever written ends with a list of names. Turn over to Matthew chapter 1. You're going to want to turn there. It's not going to be on the screen. Matthew chapter 1. There's this genealogy takes place two places in the Bible. Ruth chapter 4 and Matthew chapter 1. This is the zoom out. Matthew chapter 1, very beginning of the New Testament. We have the, we have the genealogy repeated. We're going to start in verse 3. 
Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, verse 4, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. We know that part, but let's keep going. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's what three years of seminary gets you. Verse 12. Thank you for laughing. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Miriam, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Just me? The story of Ruth is about the faithfulness of God. To, Ru to Ruth, yeah. To Naomi, yes. To Boaz, yes, absolutely. He cares for them. He provides for them. He steps into their need. Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer at great cost to himself that they were waiting on. But there is a deeper faithfulness that the story of Ruth is meant to show us, that God will do whatever it takes to fulfill his promise that a Messiah named Jesus is coming. The story of Ruth is about God's faithfulness, not just to Naomi and to Ruth, but to us. The story of Ruth is about God's faithfulness to us, how he's provided for us, how he's cared for us. See, here's what happens. Here's what the story of Ruth is about, that God sends an unlikely woman named Ruth, a son in Bethlehem, so that 1,200 years later, he could send another unlikely woman named Mary, a son in Bethlehem, Jesus that's the goal. That's the whole point of Ruth, that Jesus is the ultimate answer to our question. Will we and can we trust God? Can we trust God to save us? The overwhelming response is yes. Look at Ruth 1 through 4, and then look at Matthew 1. Look at the great lengths that God goes to to accomplish his purposes and to send our Savior. God will do whatever it takes to send the true Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to earth to save us, to redeem his people from their sins. That's the point of Ruth. The larger question, can we trust God to save us? We have to look past Ruth 4 and go, this is what God did so that his promise in Genesis 3, that his son, his seed would crush the head of the serpent would one day become true. But here's the deal, church. Here's what you have to understand. Not only can we trust God to save us, not only should we trust God to save us, but we have to trust God to save us. That is the only way. Ruth and Naomi could not save themselves. They needed a redeemer to step in and to save them at great cost to himself. And we are the same. We cannot save ourselves. The scriptures are abundantly clear on this. We are not good people who need a lifeline. We are not full of good intentions with a few mistakes here or there. We're not just in need of a little bit of help. The Bible says, Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in our sins. We are drowning in the bottom of the ocean. We are separated from life with God now and forever in desperate need of and without hope except for the true Redeemer. 
one who will save us at great cost to himself. And that's the whole point of Ruth. God preserves his promise to Adam and Eve and to Abraham, and he preserves the line of David by which one day will come the true and ultimate kinsman redeemer, a family member who redeems those who are his at great cost to himself. Enter Jesus. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus does. He enters into humanity. He takes on flesh. He who is fully God becomes fully man. He lives a perfect life that we cannot live. He does not sin. He does not disobey God. He does not rebel against God's law. He submits himself to the Father perfectly. And yet because of his love, he goes to the cross where he is beaten and mocked and scorned, where he suffers great physical agony, but also great spiritual agony. Because on the cross, Jesus, who was perfect, who had no sin, became sin for us. He takes the full wrath and punishment of God that was reserved for sin and sinners, reserved for you and I apart from Christ. Jesus takes it on himself, dies in our place, and he's buried. Three days. There's silence. The people of God doubt the promises of God. They doubt, was he really the true redeemer? Was he really the true Messiah? Was he really the true savior? But we know that the story doesn't end in the grave, that three days later the ground shakes and the the stone rolls away from the tomb. Jesus gets up out of the grave. He defeats death. He defeats Satan and he defeats sin. And he makes a way by giving us his righteousness by which we can know God and be known, be washed clean, made new and forgiven forever. Jesus, in his declaration, in his resurrection, declares what all of scripture has been saying. Jesus rises from the grave and declares once and forever, God is faithful and he can save us. God is faithful and only he can save us. The Bible says this, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Only through that. Romans 10, 9, the the Bible doesn't say if you do the right things, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you go to church, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you live as a good person, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if your grandparents believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if your parents believe in Jesus, you'll be saved. It doesn't say if you have genuine, sincere faith in something that you will be saved. It doesn't say if you live in the Bible Belt, you'll be saved, or if you vote the right way, you'll be saved. It says if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God did in fact raise him from the dead, that the resurrection is true and real, and Jesus does rule and reign forever, then you will be saved. Church, that is the gospel. That's what we celebrate. That's what we bank everything on. If you're new and you're like, what are you about as Christians? What are you about as a church? That, that is everything to us. There's the good news that makes entrance into the Christian life possible, but that's also the good news that makes continuation in the Christian life possible. We believe the gospel is not just the door. We believe that it's the A to Z. It's not just the ABC. We believe it's not just the diving board. It's the pool. Whatever analogy that you want to give to it, we believe as a church you don't move past it. It's the foundation. It's everything. It is everything in our lives, it is everything in our church that Jesus died in our place and rose again, that God is good and I am not, and Jesus saves, and so we repent and we trust in him. Will you trust God to save you? If you're not a believer in the room, then the question's for you. Will you trust God to save you? Not your good deeds, not growing up in church, not your parents' sincere faith. We trust Jesus 
to save you, that it's only by his name. Listen, everything you look to for hope and meaning and purpose and fulfillment that you think is going to make you matter or give you the fulfillment and peace that your soul longs for is lying to you, and it won't. And it'll come up empty, and it'll come up short. It will not satisfy. It cannot wash you clean. It cannot answer your shame. It cannot solve your guilt. It cannot answer the longing in your heart. That is only Jesus. Only Jesus can do that. Will you, will you trust him? I'll be down front afterward. I'd love to talk to you about that. But church, here's the deal. For those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus, will you trust God to save you also? Because here's what happens in the Christian life. And I've been following Jesus for a little bit enough to know this is what happens in my life. That I want to go, yeah, the gospel is what saved me, but Tim is what keeps me. The gospel is what saves me, but, but Tim's hard effort is what sanctifies me. That the gospel is what saves me, but like my Bible reading and my prayer and like my good discipline, that's what matures me. Listen, there's a place for discipline. There's a place for all of those things. But here's the deal. The gospel is not just the door. It's everything. In Galatians, Paul writes to the church of Galatia and he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by works of the flesh? In other words, having begun by the gospel, are you now trying to live the Christian life apart from the gospel? Having begun by what Jesus has done, a life of grace that gives you welcome into the kingdom of God, are you now trying to keep yourself in the kingdom of God on your own effort? Are you now trying to preserve, mature, sanctify? No, it is all grace. And so what we do is we say, yeah, the gospel was that thing I like checked the box on, but I've moved past that to deeper things or more mature things or like whatever things. We don't move past the gospel. We go deeper into the gospel. We further learn about the truths of God, what Christ has done for us. We go back over and over again as a church, as a people, that God is good, I am not, Jesus saves, we repent and we trust in him. And as part of why every Sunday when we gather, we celebrate communion. It's a reminder. This is not just some rote ritual that we do. It's not just something where it's like, I got to do the little wafer, I got to do the little juice, I move on. It is a part of how we as the people of God remember, we don't move past the gospel. That every Sunday we remember this, by this wafer, the body of Jesus, and through this juice, the blood of Christ. And we remember this is everything to us. Christ on the cross, dead, buried, but risen again is everything to us. Paul tells the church at Corinth, I have delivered to you what is of first importance. Jesus Christ rose again for sinners. So we celebrate every Sunday when we take communion. If you're not a Christian, I would ask you not to take communion, not because we don't want you to participate with us, but because you'd be saying that, that the resurrection and the crucifixion is true for you and it's just not yet. Rather than take communion, I invite you to take Christ. I'll be down front afterward. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Jesus, to trust him and him alone to save you. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to celebrate Jesus like we always do. We're going to sing some songs. There's going to be some folks in the back who are going to pray. Let's take communion when you're ready, and let's remember and celebrate King Jesus. Let me pray for us. And then we'll celebrate. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for Jesus on the cross. God, thank you that in the story of Ruth, the story of your faithfulness, that we see an even better, more beautiful, truer, more ultimate faithfulness of you, that you were going to do whatever it takes to get your son to a manger, to a woman named Mary, born in obscurity, born not in an inn, but in a manger. And you fulfilled your promise. 
You sent our Redeemer. You sent our Savior. God, you are the one who provided the way. You are the one who provided the sacrifice. God, you are the one who says, I am holy, and so I cannot dwell with sinners and imperfect people, but I am also loving, and so I'm going to make a way. And so thank you for Jesus. Jesus, who lives the perfect life we can't, and yet dies the death that we deserve, and yet does not stay dead, rises again. Thank you that death is defeated, that Satan is defeated, that sin is defeated, and that we, through trust in you, not through any merit of our own, not anything that we can bring in our hands, but only through faith in Christ, can we be forgiven, washed clean, and made new, and welcomed into your people and your kingdom forever. God, I pray if there's someone here who doesn't believe that, who doesn't want to acknowledge that, who doesn't want to step out in faith and own that for themselves, God, would you send your spirit to change their hearts? Only you can wake the dead. You say in your word in Ezekiel, God, how can these dry bones live? Only by the spirit of the Lord. God, for those of us who have been following you for a minute and want to move past the gospel, want to move on to these other things, thinking we keep ourselves, we grow ourselves, we sanctify ourselves, Lord, would you help us go back to the gospel, to not get bored, not get tired, not yawn at the deep truth that is everything to us, that Jesus Christ died and rose again. We need you. We love you. For all these things in Christ's name, amen.